Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. I always get a bit uncomfortable heading into this sort of episode, but I'm not going to let controversy stop me from following my gut. In this episode of Nighttime, I'm going to be discussing a topic some hold so sacred and so dear that to them... I'm going to be walking all over the very fabric of Canada. I'm sure this episode will cost me a segment of my listeners, but I have no choice but to talk about this. Let me just take a deep breath and then we'll get into it. Once upon a time, I loved Tim Hortons. I drank their coffee, I ate their fresh baked goods, but sadly those days are gone. The love affair is long over. To put it bluntly, I think they suck now. But like I said, it wasn't always this way, and that's why I'm left with these burning questions. When did Tim Hortons lose their way? Why did they lose their way? And will they ever get back the magic they used to have? The answers to these questions, however, were sitting right in front of my nose. I suppose I was just a bit too upset to realize it. It wasn't until I happened upon a piece of investigative journalism in a McLean's magazine that the full picture of this betrayal became apparent. The piece was titled, How Tim Hortons Lost Its Way. And as I read it, the veil of marketing that obscured the slow decline of Tim Hortons was forcefully pulled away, and Canada's dirtiest secret was left exposed. Some of the points raised in that article will be discussed and expanded upon in this episode as fortunately I was able to connect with the brave soul who wrote the piece. Our conversation is what we're about to hear. So let's get into it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, I'm going to be joined by author and journalist Corey Mintz, and our topic is The Decline of Tim Hortons. So just to start, Corey, rather than me do it, why don't you just introduce yourself and tell the listeners a bit about you and, and your background as a, as a, I guess, a food writer would be the way to put it. Sure. Uh, my name is Corey Mintz, and I'm a food reporter. I've been doing that for 12 years. Uh, before that, I was a cook for many years in restaurants. And uh, over the last five years, my work has really transitioned to focusing on the variety of uh, systemic issues, primarily labor but a lot of other issues happening within our food culture. And I'm presently, I've been working on a book all year about the problems happening underneath our restaurant system, the things we don't usually see when we go out to eat. But if we um, want to go out to eat, and we do, I think most of us love restaurants, uh, but we want to know that we're maybe supporting um, 
systems that make our world better rather than systems that make our world worse. Uh, hopefully the book is going to provide some answers for people looking at, uh, to the question of how they can dine out and still maintain their moral values. Interesting. Hopefully uh, the world goes back to normal and it won't be because right now you're kind of writing a history book about the time before. Mm. But I guess uh, where I am in Nova Scotia, people, restaurants are, are happening. It's just seating is limited. But Like are you dining out inside restaurants right now? Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's when you go to a restaurant, they will have, you know, every second table will be open to keep people spaced apart or they're towards the end of the summer. They were really leaning on like the outdoor patios and sure. stuff for 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 dining. in. so it was st- it was still happening. But but you were able to go to a place and have what, 50 percent capacity and, and comfortably eat inside. Yeah, give or take. And it would, you know, you'd wear your mask as you enter and get to the table. Then you take mm-hmm. off your mask. The waiter would be wearing a mask. Right. A lot of restaurants would have a limited menu. Like they wouldn't have the full offering of, of their menu, probably because of the limited clientele that would be in there. But yep. what's really what's really booming in, at least in Nova Scotia, is um, the delivery services where I'm, I'm sure there's different ones, DoorDash, Uber Eats, where you can order from local restaurants in kind of independent people would pick up the food and deliver it to your home. So I think a lot of restaurants here were really relying on that to keep moving. Don't, don't wind me up on the predatory tech companies that deliver food. Uh-oh. Okay. I'm not even going to get there. <laughs> so as a, as a food writer with a background in, in cooking like you do, I'm surprised that Tim Hortons would capture a lot of your attention. Like the, the reason I know you at, is as – Somebody who's done a lot of consideration of, of Tim Hortons, the business, you know, where they fit in Canadian culture uh, in present day. Like, like what led you to focus so much of your time on Tim Hortons? It's an interesting question because I feel like I've learned something additional about Canada or culture in Canada by working the Tim Hortons beat. But the truthful answer to your question is, um, I mean, I was conscripted into writing about Tim Hortons by, you know, I'm a freelance writer Mm -hmm. um, and I have any, at any given time between two and 10 different clients, magazines, publications, newspapers. uh, And one in particular, McLean's, an editor there said, oh, hey, would you write this piece about Tim Hortons? And then, I don't know, every couple of months since she just comes back to me says we we need to shovel coal into the furnace that is the Tim Hortons <laughs> story machine people yeah it, it is a subject of endless interest to Canadians regardless of who owns Tim Hortons a Canadian company or another company um, whether people like it or whether they hate it it's just it's um it's it is as the laser pointer is to the cat it's just Canadians never seem to tire of that subject. And so as a result, at first I was sort of, ugh, I guess I'll write about Tim Hortons. And then it became, ah, this is this is kind of fun. Yeah. Well, it's, I've witnessed the brand kind of change over the years. Like as a kid, I was really into Tim Hortons and it was like my go-to kind of coffee donut shop with my dad. Wait, wait, wait. You would get a coffee when you were like eight years old with your dad? I started – well, that would have been hot chocolate then. But my dad got me my first coffee when I got my first job. I think I was 13. Oh. And I had stayed out – I stayed up really late, I think, playing Nintendo 64 the night before like my third <laughs> shift. And as we were driving there, I was like – 
you know, I, I think my dad could see I was just falling asleep in the front seat of the car. And we went through the Tim's drive-thru and he bought me a triple-triple. That way it would be sweet enough that I could drink it. Right. And I think I was probably the most efficient worker they had ever seen that day because I was, you know, wired to sound from that coffee. And I've been drinking probably three cups of coffee a day since then. Thanks, Dad. But uh, <laughs> great. It's a great story, both of parenthood and addiction. Yeah, exactly. And also that weird liminal place in between childhood and adulthood where you're old enough, apparently, to work and drink coffee, but not old enough to know that you shouldn't stay up all night playing video games uh, before then. And also not old enough to drink coffee without three sugars. Yeah, exactly. I'm down to a single single now. What, what's your history with, with Tim Hortons? Every, everyone has their story. Were you, were you a Tim Hortons believer at one point? The, the romantic story of my childhood and Tim Hortons is the day that um, Christina Gonzalez, editor at McLean, said, do you want to write this article about how Tim Hortons has lost his way? <laughs> I think before that, I had probably had a few cups of coffee and a few donuts. Okay. Um, I love donuts. Back in the before times when we used to travel – you know, anywhere I go, I love getting donuts. Every culture has their own donuts. I found LA has a, a really strong culture because it's such a driving city of independent donut shops, despite the dominance of Dunkin' Donuts in the American market. And I'm just always excited to eat donuts. I had, uh, I served donuts instead of cake at my wedding. Um, but the Tim Hortons donuts are bad. I've had them a few times and I've gone, yeah, these are not good donuts. Um, and so I never went back until, you know, a series of, of of articles, you know, asked me to go eat this new donut and the dream donuts. And then at one point they had me eat everything on the menu uh, for a video. So I don't have any, uh, I, I don't have any personal history with the chain. The image they portray as like the Canadian brand and the Canadian coffee shop. Have you done much research into or, or much consideration into how they became known as that? Like what how did Tim Hortons manage to grab onto like Canadiana to the extent they had? Well, I remember looking into this because I I remember I was started to write about the distinction between this company that is that is owned by 3G Capital and this this hedge fund in Brazil, and their still uh, perceived status of this Canadian national brand and almost a symbol of patriotism and the fact that every politician, you know, has to stop at a Tim Hortons um, when they're on the campaign trail. And I thought, but why do I think of it that way as Canadiana? Like who, is this just an assumption or did someone make me this promise? And I started scrolling through old ads and I mean, it's just been a consistent part of their advertising brand strategy for decades to link themselves with uh, family, with the flag, uh, and with hockey. And, you know, and, and they've done that um, as many chains and franchises do through um, uh, through sponsorship of, of little leagues and and events and fundraising you know if you go look at the website for any big uh, chain restaurant they've always got a page for fundraising to associate their brand with certain things and usually that's about them choosing the types of things that they want to be associated with um and of all the ads that i saw i mean i saw some really good ads i thought wow this is this is good writing um the, there was the one with the um 
uh, the family moving out of, I'm gonna bungle this, but like is a family moving out of a house and they find a, a box full of Tim Horton's cups and it, it looks like all true and they're like, oh, this is just a bunch of trash. And I think the dad who, who was then the child remembers that they saved one cup from every hockey game that the, his father took him. To. It was just like such a good layer cake of nostalgia and patriotism and things that we're all usually associate with, with Canadiana. Uh, my, bro I, my brother was the jock. He played sports. I read comic books. Uh, I've been to three hockey games in my life. Um, so that never, they never got me like that, you know? Okay. Yeah. Well, I know like in the beginning, Tim Hortons was kind of a locally owned mom, pa kind of coffee shop, at least I believe when it first started, like was, did you ever go into the history of when it first started? Was kind of their image that they're trying to portray today, at least accurate in the beginning when it was a small chain? I think what everyone needs to know about every chain restaurant is um, you can break them down because I was sort of breaking down for book chapters. Like, how do I explain the difference between this type of restaurant and that type of restaurant? And when it comes to chains, there's, first of all, um, franchise versus corporate owned, right? So the place where like, I own a thousand restaurants because I'm the CEO of the country company versus I own a franchise and I basically sell the rights for other people to open the same restaurant and they give me 5% of their sale. That's what Tim Hortons is. And then there's publicly traded ones demand constant growth. And that's why it seems like there's way too many locations because they have to satisfy uh, the shareholders. And then there's limited service versus quick service, or as we know it, like a full service restaurant versus fast food. And Tim Hortons, um, you know, fits in the uh, publicly traded, uh, limited service, um, franchise, franchised restaurant, they all have the same origins, all of these, um, up to, up to I guess, like about 15 or 20 years ago. They all start as li little family-owned cafes, burger shacks, chicken shops that at some point were successful enough that they opened a second location. And in the mid-20th century, when franchising became really popular, um, I think like in 1960, there was something like 1500 franchise locations and by the mid 70s there was like 40,000 or something in America. So once that business model took off, the local regional two or three restaurant location chain franchised and grew. And Tim Hortons is part of that or any restaurant that like franchises becomes a very different beast, you know, a few years ago Tim Hortons was planning on opening 1500 locations in China. I'm not sure if they did that. The, the growth we see now is just like unprecedented. There's always been a lot of Tim Hortons, but I feel like they're, they're expanding around the world. We see them everywhere. Like in my small town where I'm from initially, Sydney and Cape Breton and Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. there was a spot downtown where you could stand and you could see three Tim Hortons all like kind of in the same block. And this was a little rundown downtown in small town Canada. There, there was no need for, for three of them. So th they're everywhere. Are still there? Uh, I think uh, it, they're down to two, but it's well, still. That's, I mean, that's part of the problem is, is an oversaturation of the market because they're owned by a, a company that publicly trades and they've got to constantly expand to, to justify um, a growth in the shareholder price. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're opening more locations than you need. Why did that intersection need three Tim Hortons? Mm -hmm. 
and and part of the result we're seeing is they're not doing well. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's why we're seeing so much change within Tim Hortons. The the biggest change that I see seems to be how they they handle their food, what they offer, how they prepare it. Like I remember as a kid, you would be sitting there at Tim Hortons and the baker would kind of come from the back room with the big tray of the fresh baked goods. Now it's all like made somewhere else and frozen and shipped. And the menu is just, I think you described it in one of your articles as like a, a Mad Lib gone wrong for like a of a food mad lib or something where it's just random words almost you throw them together and it's like yeah we'll sell that it is maybe this need for growth and shareholder value why they're trying so many different menu items yeah that's part of it um you know when you when you cook in a restaurant that has 40 seats mm-hmm. and you've got 10 things on the menu you probably manage to make most of those things by hand and when you open a second location you probably duplicate some of those items because you know they were popular and when you have a set a third and a fourth and a hundredth and a thousandth location you are probably copying the same menu but more importantly you realize for the economy of scale why make these things by hand in each kitchen instead of having a central commissary kitchen where you're mass producing them uh, and then ship them out to the locations and that's what happens when a business like tim horton's grows, you say, why am I paying people even minimum wage to hand make donuts every day when I can have one kitchen where I'm making a billion donuts a day and I ship them out. In order to do that, that means I probably have to like half bake things, then send them out to be finished at locations. At every step of the corner, every every step of of the way as you grow, you have to find ways to cut corners. Uh, Call them efficiencies, whatever they are, but they're basically ways to do things cheaper quicker and of course easier as the cost of labor grows up you got you got to pay people more when minimum wage goes up you go well then how can i get them to do less oh i know i'll like batch cook everything requiring people to do less of the work but in the end it's always going to taste worse so on one one hand to answer your question you've constantly got a way find a way to make food easier and kind of crappier as you grow but then also as you grow you're constantly seeking new customers and one way that chains do that is they buy other chains you know that's when you read about uh when you hear about a company like the keg or red lobster that's actually owned by some other company and that company buys three other companies because they discovered that there was a growth in whatever the middle eastern cuisine that these people make or the burger chain that's coming up in some regional place uh and what they're doing is they're buying growth to justify to their shareholders that the company is growing but they're really just buying someone else's customers or in the case of tim hortons they're constantly throwing shit on the menu to say some maybe this will attract some new customer you know we've got every last canadian who was going to come to us who is not the starbucks customer we've got those customers but maybe there's one new gen z customer who's going to be attracted by this you know sprinkle donut this (laughs) uh you know they they did that test run of like uh, a couple dozen different flavors at their prototype restaurants last year. And I went to the one in Toronto and it was like big and glitzy. They'd clearly spent a million dollars on the renovation of the restaurant. They had all these new flavors and some of them were good. Um, but I knew that what that was, they're just testing and they're going to pick the top three sellers. And despite like really interesting flavor combinations, the ones they chose were like 
chocolate strawberry and caramel or something. And then once they sort of rolled those out everywhere and I was at my in-laws in Winnipeg and the week that they rolled those out, my editor was like, well, you got to go try the, the final product. And I was like, this isn't what they were selling last year on King Street in Toronto. This is the worst version of this. Uh, the icing is not the same icing I had last year. The donut tastes like, you know, it was cooked somewhere 12 hours ago and then finished. And they, they were just like, at, like, that's what I mean. At every stage, you got to make it crappier. And in the end, you end up offering things that like the original clientele doesn't want. Yeah. And the way I feel like when I go there, it's hard not to feel like you're a member of like, like a paying member of a focus group or something. It's just, it's always something <laughs> new that I've never had before or never heard of and never thought the need to try. Like, I think it, it seems to bother a lot of people because like your loyalty is being questioned. Yeah. I see my dad as like the typical Canadian guy, like Tim Horton's bread and butter is, is my dad. He's been getting the same thing there for, you know, 50 years probably. And like my dad couldn't care less about like a meatless burger when he goes to Tim Horton's or these bizarre donuts. Like he didn't try beyond breakfast wrap. I couldn't imagine my dad. Like that is like witchcraft to my dad, like to try something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just, I always wonder like, who are they trying to get in there and at what cost? Because like, I think my dad would roll his eyes at, you know, these dream donuts with where it's just like your regular donut, $2 more, and it has a bunch of gummy bears on it or something. Or the the Beyond Meat thing. Like, do you think that's hurting the brand to for them to try to expand like this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's two questions there. Who are they trying to attract and what is the cost? And... Mm -hmm. I've been, I guess, uh, while I've been writing about um, chains and franchises, I've been listening to this uh, podcast, uh, Doughboys, um, which is okay. about uh, which is about chain restaurants in the states. And and one of the things I've noticed from the podcast hosts is so what you're describing a feeling of loyalty to certain brands and saying I like this place and a sense of outrage when they go a bridge too far and new menu offerings, or even worse. Um, delete fan favorites for for whatever market testing reasons. It's it's almost egregious to people to say uh, it sends the message like you come here for this product and by offering new products, it's like we're doubting that your service your your loyalty to us enough. Your loyalty to us is enough. We're, we're trying to find more people who are not you because uh, that's the answer. They're, they're they're trying to constantly grow. Uh, and attract new customers and it's not been successful for tim hortons right so they're owned by 3g which under the umbrella of of rbi restaurant brands international also owns popeyes and uh burger king so since in the last i think six or eight months um Burger King, same source stale same store sales which is how they measure success have dropped something like 13 percent um Popeyes is doing amazing. They're up like 30%. And Tim Hortons is is down like 30%. They're tanking. Wow. And I I believe they've discontinued their Beyond Meat products and some of their like flurry style drinks, some of their like whipped 
uh, cold drinks. And, and so there's your answer. Like they're trying to get that Starbucks uh, mocha latte crowd. They're trying to get some of that McDonald's flurry crowd. There's trying to get some of that young people who, you know, don't eat meat, but want a lot of traditional fast food meat products. And it is been a dismal failure. They have not attracted those people. They're they're not growing the way they need to, and they're going so far as to like take those uh, items off the menu after a year or two. Yeah, they're pissing my dad off, is what they're doing. It's like it's like ACDC but, coming out with a couple folk songs on their next album, like just to mix it up. Yeah, and <laughs> it, I mean, what's the result of that? I mean, you can you can look at that sort of same uh, same store sales numbers, yada yada. Um, when you look at the anecdotal evidence of people like your dad who say I'm pissed off, does that change their consuming habits? Does your did your father either stop going to Tim Hortons or does he go there less and choose some other place for coffee uh, or whatever else he gets from Tim Hortons? Sorry to pull you away from the episode, but I want to take a moment to thank the subscribers of the Nighttime Premium feed as it's their support that makes this show possible. If any of you listening enjoy Nighttime and aren't subscribed to the premium feed, let me take a quick moment and explain what you're missing. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can subscribe to a different podcast feed in which the episodes are posted earlier than here in the free feed and are done without any advertising. But there's more benefits to the premium feed than simply better versions of the free content. The premium feed also includes post-show discussions and a variety of additional content that will take you even further into the rabbit holes. So if you've got a couple dollars to pitch in towards the creation of Nighttime, the premium feed is for you. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. So with that said, again, a huge thanks to all subscribers to the premium feed and a thank you to everyone else listening for considering it. Now, let's get back to the episode. Tim Hortons for the longest time was seen as like Canada's leader in coffee sales, but I believe the race is a lot tighter now. Who would be their biggest competition in Canada for, you know, coffee donut sales? Would it be McDonald's? I think now? it is McDonald's. I think they're, I mean, McDonald's, nobody knows what they're doing better than McDonald's when it comes to like retail food sales. Um, and I, and I mm. think it was, I don't know when it was that they started rolling out that McCafe concept. Yeah, I think it was about five years ago. But but in my understanding, it was essentially like they can't do all day breakfast at all their locations because it, it, it inhibits their ability to efficiently serve the rest of the menu. But there is demand for that cuisine all day long. And, and they open the McCafe places that just focus on that. And so they're able to do everything just as quickly. Um, and people people love McDonald's coffee. Um, it's It's got huge supporters just as much as Tim Hortons. Yeah, well, what I find is they've corrected a lot of the kind of on-the-ground mistakes Tim Hortons make, like just something simple as their cup. Their cup is like double-layered and the top doesn't leak, where when you go to Tim Hortons, I feel like all the packaging is just a mess and the food is a mess. I, I know like I'm always complaining about Tim Hortons cups whenever I get a coffee from there, and I'll go to initially what brought me to McDonald's for my, you know, my three times a day coffee when I'm away from the house is just the fact that their cup doesn't leak coffee on my pants. 
which seems like a pretty minor uh, request. No, that's that's the sort of stuff matters. I mean, not to me. I'm I'm a coastal elite. I drink. I get take out coffee. I have a gold cup. I ask them to fill it up for me wherever I go. But when you talk about competition, um, it's often we're often positioning like a Starbucks versus Tim Hortons. Uh, that's a class divide thing, and that's the way they usually divide those segments of the market. Um, but when you talk about McDonald's versus Tim Hortons, they're going toe to toe because they're they are within the same price point, and they're also perceived the same way in terms of like working class, value conscious consumers are going to go for these products. And when you get down to like the difference between ten cents or so for the price of coffee, it's about the service, it's about the quality, and it's about the little things like whether or not the thing spills on you you know like if if we agree that french fries from the same five places are just about as good if one place can develop a takeout container that doesn't steam the fries by the time you start eating them that's the place that's going to get your business because that little bit of course those things matter now what about this is uh, you you've considered this so much what do you do you think tim hortons is ever going to be able to get back you know, the, whatever magic they had 15 or 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Or do you think that it, things have just changed so much that they're now just, you know, flailing in the water somewhere? No, I think uh, ultimately Canada is a sparsely populated country. And mm-hmm. the amount of growth they have here is kind of like capped. And that's why they are looking to spread to America, China, uh, the Middle East, um, because at the same time, they know that the the origin myth of being a patriotic Canadian company is over. I mean, a lot of people don't care. They're loyal customers. They're going to go because it's part of their daily routine. They don't say, I want to support Canada by going to Tim Hortons. They just, like, that's part of their morning. They, yeah. up, they get in the car and they stop at Tim's on the way to wherever it is they're going for work to get their coffee and whatever uh, whatever it is that they snack on. I think a lot of people, the bubble has burst in terms of like the awareness of, of that sale, uh, that they're no longer a Canadian company. So nobody's supporting Canadian when they go there. I think they took their second hit um, when they started getting all the well-deserved bad press over uh, labor issues. You know, uh, people in, in, in Winnipeg were striking over the difference in a 10 cent pay raise uh, and they locked them out. Um, forcing, you know, when the minimum wage went up in Ontario, some franchise owners attempted to eliminate paid breaks. Um, that was the worst PR nightmare they ever had. I mean, I think mm-hmm. far more damaging to their public perception than the Beyond Meat Burger. You know, as much as that annoyed some people, like, well, why are they offering something I don't want? I don't know why I did an old person <laughs> voice for that. That's not fair. <laughs> but I think yeah. those things did irreparable harm to the brand maybe only you know customers have a short um memory for these things Mm -hmm. but when those things do happen they they chip away at loyalty and they cause people to go you know maybe i'll try that other place um Mm -hmm. so i i think they just kind of it's it's more like a romance or a friendship where yeah you can like after you kind of grow apart you could go see a couples therapist and, and and rekindle like that connection that you had but it's really tenuous i think the emotional grasp you have on customers and when you lose that you don't just get it back by you know offering a a sales incentive or some some new product 
just in case someone from Tim Hortons Corporate's listening, one thing that you did at Hi, Tim. <laughs> they could, I'm sure they don't like you very much for one. Um, but the uh, one of the things you did in your article was uh, you went through their menu and like trimmed the fat, and you got their menu down from like say 60 items to like 18 core items or something. Do you see that as something they would they would ever do, or do you think this idea of you know, having a full menu with lunch and burgers and all this stuff is going to be in their future. I mean, I think it's something everyone wants them to do. Let, let me put it this way. Anytime I write something about it, I always get these comments. I get these emails um, from people. And it's always a chorus of it's like, one, there's too many things in the menu. Two, there's people who want to let me and everyone know. Tim Hortons has gone downhill since they took blank off the menu. And it's always like, whatever it is, it's the duchy. The duchy is one I hear a lot about. Um, but like, there's always something that angers people or Tim Hortons has gone downhill since they started serving blank, you know, whether it's a chili bowl um, or, or, or mochaccino, whatever it is, like there's always something that's too far for them. I'm a huge proponent of smaller menus, whether it's the fancy restaurant um, or the fast food restaurant, the evidence is there that, and I'm going to get on my labor issue here, like you can treat people fairly and pay them well when you give them less to do and you make it more efficient, right? In-N-Out Burger, one of the things that makes them exceptional and and the fact that they pay above minimum wage um, and they retain employees for decades uh, is that their whole menu is burgers and fries and shakes, you know? And they've got a few variations of those things, but they don't have 1,500 things like Tim Hortons does so yeah, they would probably be able to um, make their business run a lot smoother with a shortened menu, but that's not that's not how they're gonna find the growth. I, I hate to keep using that term, but like mm-hmm. that's what actually feeds the beast of these businesses, and so they can't go backwards. I'd love an actual answer to your question from inside their boardroom. I'd love to hear like how they think of this. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard from anyone at, like in? Tim Hortons corporate after your articles? Because I I think your articles, they were so well written and so right to the point of what's wrong with Tim Hortons in Canada. And I think reading, like I may have seen the change with Tim Hortons over the years, but I never was able to like clearly see it until I read your your series of articles in McLean's and it just made so much sense. Have you ever heard from someone at Tim's being like, oh, come on in and we'll show you what's going on? Um. I have not is, is, is the short answer. It's, it's often, it's the bigger the company, the harder it is to get an answer, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that. Um, The, the last time I remember trying to get any answer out of Tim Hortons was an article for the walrus about um, Canadian food companies expanding in countries with questionable human rights uh, violations and specifically looking at like, um, smokes poutine who was looking at expanding in like uh qatar and iran and at the time uh tim hortons was looking to open 1500 uh restaurants in china and they had a bunch of places all through uh countries that had really spotty issues so i got in touch with them just to like confirm a couple details or ask some really basic question like what's your plan but you know i didn't ask them even everything hard but like it is so difficult to get through the PR departments of these companies and get any, even just to get a no comment took me, I think five tries just to finally get someone to say there's no comment, but they really put up a serious firewall and 
no, no one's ever reached out to uh, apologize. Apologize for making you try all that food because you've eaten everything on your menu. You got guts to go through that. They don't owe me an apology. My editor, Christine, owes me an apology. And what she actually owes me the apology for is not making me eat it, but she presented me with this mountain of food. And I was taking a bite like Fire Tuck in the old um, Robin Hood cartoon. There's a dated reference that shows that I'm 45. Um, and, and But we talked about it. I was like, we can't waste all this food. This is a sin. So, you know, we divvied it up what I hadn't touched and she could save for the staff. And then everything else I took home. My wife at first was like, this is awesome. We're going to eat all the food all weekend. And as soon as she took like five bites on Saturday morning, she's like, all right, this is this is gross. We managed to eat what we could. But the wrappers, I separated like the food for the compost and then the wrappers for the garbage and the raccoons in Toronto, they mean business, you know, yeah. they tore the hell open that thing. <laughs> and just like at the next morning, it was everywhere all over the yard, all the Tim Hortons. Oh. And that's what she owes me for. So thanks, Tim Hortons. <laughs> now, for anyone listening who wants to follow your work and your analysis of Tim Hortons in the future, is there any like one-stop shop to follow Corey Mintz? <laughs> uh, you should just check me out on, on Twitter. I usually post my articles there, and I frequently contribute to uh, McLean's and uh, The Walrus. McLean's is usually where Tim Hortons-related stories appear. Awesome. Well, we'll wrap it up with that, unless there's anything else you want to add. That's it. Uh, Everyone uh, stay safe. If any decision makers at Tim Hortons are listening to this episode, please hire Corey Mintz to help you get back on track. Also, please get new cups and new lids. Your old ones were awful. Your new ones are awful. And I'm sick of drippy cups, bad coffee, and even worse food. And with that, we'll end this episode. But before we part, I'm going to give some thanks. First, a massive thank you to Corey Mintz for trying everything on Tim Horton's menu and living to tell us about it. And then, of course, a huge thank you to all the listeners of Nighttime. Without your interest and your support, Nighttime would have went the way of Tim Horton's a long time ago. But the battle's still raging on, and I hope as many of you as possible will have my back. So if you want to keep this show rolling, let me recommend subscribing to the premium feed. Not only does it make this show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you're going to hear in the free feed. For example, shortly after the release of this episode, the post-show nightcap discussion episode will be released exclusively on the premium feed. In that discussion, I'll be joined by another fellow that celebrates Canada's weird and wonderful. His name is John, but he's better known as Instagram's Canada.gov.ca. I'm excited to complain about Tim's when we get together. And since I brought up that premium feed, let me thank the newest subscribers. Carl D., Maddie, Catherine, Stevie, and Amy Gadette. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help me financially, you can give me a huge hand by simply liking and sharing the episodes across social media. And if you aren't already following me on social, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the handle at NighttimePod. And for anyone out there who has any story ideas or wants to give feedback on the show, I can be reached at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and don't waste your time or money 
on bad donuts and bad coffee. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. It's a morning routine for millions. Uh, can I get a large coffee with one cream and one sugar, please? Is that else? That's everything. The wait for that caffeine fix, the anticipation for that first sip of Timmy's. Time to cue the entire experience after the hot coffee hits the cup holder. This is where it begins, right here. It starts with the delicate craft of opening the lid. It's just a thin strip of plastic between you and disaster. Brian Hansen wrote a letter about his annoyance with the leaky lids, sending it direct to Tim Horton's executive. The complaint was posted online and has gone viral. Well, there's two ways that you can send a complaint. You can be that guy or you can add a little humor into it, maybe make somebody's day when they read it, and get a response. And it's clear he's found the comedy in the controversy. I've got a stained shirt, I've got a burnt hand, and um, lucky I didn't cut my lip on that speed pump. This is all before 8 a.m. Tim's officials have responded, appreciating the passion from Hansen, saying many guests actually prefer their lids over other designs, and suggest if he prefers an alternative to the flat lids, to request a dome lid that was introduced with the launch of the espresso beverages. You shouldn't have to specify whether you want the Fight Club lid or you want to have a nice morning. It should just come with a lid that's going to make sure you don't show up to work looking like you've been rolled in an alley. And the opinions are just as personal as the way people take their coffee. You get hooked on Tim's, you get hooked on Tim's. No bad lid is going to turn you off that no, coffee. not a bit. If you make the lids more expensive, you're going to have to pay more for the coffee. So you say leave the lids as is? Yeah, they're disposable cups. I kind of wish that they went to a more, I don't know, same as everyone else. And that's the hope. The design engineers at Canada's Java Giant will consider an alteration to the coffee cover. We can have change. We can have new lids. First world problem. Until they do, Joe Crotel, Global News.